Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're continuing our special ESG Industry Insights mini-series, coming to you each Wednesday for the next few weeks. In this series of episodes, we're going to take a stroll through the neighborhood of different industries to gain an understanding of the challenges and opportunities that companies are facing in each business sector as they work through implementing and reporting on their ESG priorities. This week, guest host Casey Herman, PwC's U.S. ESG leader, back to talk about the tech industry. The first thing I would want to understand is what is my current state of preparedness? Let's focus on the things that are no regrets. There's big companies like, you know, like these tech companies that are saying, if you want to do business with us, we want your carbon footprint. We want you to set science-based greenhouse gas reduction targets and report to us annually. So it doesn't really matter where it comes from. It doesn't really matter whether you're a public or private company. These are things that it's just part of, of how you do business. Those are our guests, Rich Good and Robert Moline, partners in PwC's technology practice. Many tech companies were early adopters and leaders in voluntary ESG and climate change reporting, as well as publicly setting net zero goals. So it's something the industry's been focused on for quite some time. Rich and Robert will cover what tech companies are thinking about the SEC's climate disclosure proposal and the unique challenges that companies in the industry face as they manage supply chain, portfolio energy intensity, and overall product development in a rapidly changing environment. And even for those listeners in other industries, many of these lessons and issues are universal, so I promise there's something in here for everyone. I think you'll find their conversation with Casey interesting and insightful. So with that, let's get started. Rich, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've had various iterations of this conversation with each of you at at different times over the last several months. And and I know from those conversations and working with you that we we really have no better experts on uh, ESG reporting and strategy and decarbonization strategies and motivations in the technology space than the two of you. So I'm I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Um, let me start with just an observation, and, and maybe I'm not right on this, but it has struck me that technology companies, and, and especially the largest of the technology companies, have been some of the most aggressive early movers in both voluntary reporting of their environmental, but, but more broadly, all of their ESG metrics and strategies. Um, and, and some of the most aggressive in terms of making pledges and goals publicly. Um, I'm sure that's not entirely accurate because the, the technology market is such a big market. But, but tell, you know, give me a little bit of commentary on whether how accurate you think that observation is. And if it is accurate, why have these companies leaned in so heavily when many of them are not really large emitters themselves, at least in terms of direct emission, emissions? Casey, I think that's a great observation, and 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 it's in line with my view as well. 
And if you look at the macro reasons, why are some of these large tech companies so far ahead of others and, and really sort of the aspirational peers that many, many companies seek to emulate? There are a number of reasons. Of course, everybody's trying to attract and retain the best younger talent, and younger talent tends to really be passionate about the environment and ESG and wanting to work for a company that's helping to move the needle. But, but more importantly, I, I think it's really part and parcel of their business model, meaning this is a very large opportunity, the opportunity to decarbonize the things that we do every day. Heck, this podcast alone, um, prior, prior to technology, you know, would all be in a room in New York or Chicago or L.A. recording this, flying in and flying out. Now we can do it from the comfort of our own offices, and it's all tech-enabled. So I really see this as they're taking a leading position because there's a good opportunity for them to help other companies on their own road to decarbonization and reducing their carbon footprints. Rich, I would just add in on that. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic when you separate out the leaders and with their long history of, of being environmentally and sustainable focused. Um, you have this big group of leaders who are all setting a really high bar and driving that through their value chains. Um, I find that when you're talking with I'd say the middle market of TMT accounts, there's a lot more wait and see attitude, kind of you know hiding in the peloton to to use a cycling uh, analogy. Um, you know they don't want to get dropped, but at the same time they're not ready to go out and and be at the front of the pack. Um, so they're you know using this opportunity now to make sure that they're following what their primary customers are asking them to do and not getting out of line. Uh, but the the game is basically getting raised for all of them. And I, and I have to imagine as the biggest companies and the leaders in this space commit even more um, ardently to these reductions, it's going through their supply chains to the rest of the industry. So, uh, you know, I think like a lot of things in you know, stratified business environments, the, the, the leaders bring the rest along. Is, is that something you all are seeing as well? For sure. You know, I often say a rising tide lifts all boats. And these large companies have a great platform just due to their size and buying power to request from their suppliers to help them achieve their own goals. And you're right, Casey, you said in the very beginning, a lot of these companies, their own maybe scope one and scope two carbon footprint is not very large, relatively speaking, compared to, say, a steel company or something like that or an automotive manufacturer. Um, but but their supply chain emissions are really the largest source of their emissions. So it seems natural to engage your partners. And it, it's really sort of in keeping with their overall market leadership that the largest companies are using their size and their buying power to actively engage their suppliers rather than just sort of forcing them to, say, calculate a carbon footprint and have done with it. A lot of the leaders are, are then giving these suppliers tools, tips, and guidance on how to decarbonize or, or asking them to set science-based greenhouse gas reduction targets because it does have that ripple effect of helping them to reduce their own emissions in the supply chain as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy that we're having this conversation at the top of our, of our podcast because, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the SEC proposed rules around climate disclosures and you know, that's certainly critical. It's certainly um, uh, going to drive a lot of companies to action. But even if you're not a public company, even if you don't think you're going to be caught up in those rules, or maybe you think those rules aren't going to be successfully promulgated at the end of the day because of litigation, these reporting requirements aren't going away. 
And this is a business issue, not a business compliance issue. And, uh, you know, I know that if we're getting opportunities to work with uh, the largest tech companies and many other companies outside of the tech industry, it's one of the first questions in the proposals, uh, the request for proposals that we respond to is what are we doing in terms of our own net zero strategy? And, and some of those questions have been pretty direct in terms of what's the carbon output of our engagement delivery team, right? How, how much are we going to have to travel? How much are, you know, are, how much carbon is going to be emitted by serving this particular project? So, uh, this is really a business issue, not, not just a compliance issue. And I think. It's important to get that out on the table because all that we're going to talk about maybe is, is a little kind of focused on SEC rules, but but these companies are asking for the same thing. Yeah, that's, that, that's absolutely right. I, I remember during sort of the financial crisis, uh, I, I heard this great quote. I've never forgot it. Never, never waste a good crisis. Um, and, and, you know, some, some companies may say, see some of these regulations coming, both the SEC and the European Union, um, as maybe a crisis. But, but really, there's an opportunity. I mean, sure, you could treat this as a regulatory exercise. What, what are the requirements? I'm going to meet them and let's move on. But, but really, to, to do this well, you have to engage your entire supply chain and you have to really engage everybody in your company. I mean, this rule really helps. Uh, really shows the intersection between sort of the ESG and sustainability folks and the finance function. But it even goes deeper than that. Just getting access to good quality data really engages everybody from the shop floor up to the CFO's office. And, and that's an opportunity to really have this sort of that end to end vision of, of how does ESG work in a company to create sustainable competitive advantage. I think, Rich, I think it also opens up. Um, a lens into the current state of companies' information supply chains and exposed a fair number of gaps that a lot of software companies are running around trying to fix. And, you know, even consulting firms like PwC are out trying to help clients to close those gaps, uh, which are, are significant if you're looking to take a a process that now is, what, six months to get your, your data all captured and, and reported and turn that into one that matches your quarterly rhythms with the SEC. Absolutely. That's a great point, Robert. Um, one of the services we provide together, you and I, to a lot of our clients is really an assessment of their greenhouse gas reporting. And more often than not, there are really significant gaps that would preclude someone like us or another auditor coming in to, to give a clean opinion about whether or not they've calculated their greenhouse gas emissions correctly. And as we know, that's a, that's a core requirement of the SEC regulation. Um, so there's quite a bit of work to do in getting this information up and running and in a position where it's sort of investment grade. And, and if you look at the history, it's not surprising. We've had financial accounting rules and regulations for well over 100 years, lots of experience. Uh, we have one client that has 1,200 people in their finance function, but three people in their ESG function. And now where ESG is squarely on the shoulders of the controller and the CFO and chief accounting officer's office, um, never before have, have they worked, had to work so closely together. And I think for some core ESG folks, it's been really a surprise about just how much and how detailed the information they need to get ready for just something as simple as carbon footprint, let alone climate-related risk, is, is really going to uh, you know, force them to have that deep examination of their processes, their controls, and just, just how and what they calculate. 
So, Rich, that's a good time to maybe pause um, and talk a little bit about what the SEC proposed climate disclosure rules required. Um, we have a wealth of webcasts and podcasts and written materials at PwC giving a ton of detailed information about what the 507-page disclosure requirements uh, called for. But can you give us just a a three-minute overview of exactly uh, what what's asked for, and then we can talk about some of the challenges of meeting those reporting requirements? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. At the heart of the SEC proposal, which is right now a proposal, and they were out for a 60-day comment period, and that's now closed, and we expect the rule to sort of be finalized sometime later this year. Uh, at the heart of it is they're asking companies to report in their, in their core financials, not in a separate sustainability report or anything, their greenhouse gas emissions, and have that assured uh, meaning having an auditor come in and give a, give an independent opinion over whether or not the data that you include there is, is fairly presented and accurate and complete. In addition to that, there are certain other metrics that are going to be reported in, in the 10K and in the, uh, in the financial footnotes around the impact of climate change in terms of your expenditures. So uh, just a few examples. If you have a, an aggressive net zero target, we're going to be net zero by 2030. Uh, well, presumably, there's some expenditures that you'll be making around there. And in the SEC proposal, if those expenditures exceed 1% of any financial statement line item, you're going to have to report on that and have that assured along with your greenhouse gas emissions. Hi, all. It's Heather. I wanted to jump in here to clarify for you that in the climate disclosure proposal, the greenhouse gas emissions reporting requirements would fall under a company's regulation SK disclosures and would be subject to a separate attest report for large accelerated and accelerated filers on a phase basis, while the disclosure of climate-related financial statement impacts would fall under regulation SX and would be included in the financial statement footnotes which, depending on your situation, are subject to audits of the financial statements and internal control over financial reporting or just the financial statements, as well as a company's internal control over financial reporting. Thanks, all. Another example may be the impact of a severe weather event, you know, an acute issue like a storm or a drought or some other disruption that, that causes physical damage or impact to your revenue, positive or negative, due to a climate-type event. Um, and, and again, that's subject to the same 1% threshold. Uh, there's lots of conversation that the SEC may uh, rise that, but as of today, it's still proposed at, at 1%. I'd say one more thing add to it is companies do have to detail the climate-related risks and opportunities. And for those of our listeners who haven't heard of it, the TCFD, or the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, that is the framework that the SEC rule is really built around. And the TCFD gives you this nice taxonomy for understanding climate-related risks and opportunities along two axes, um, transitional risks, so things like carbon taxation, regulations, markets, 
think about the transition from gasoline-powered vehicles to electric vehicles. That would be an example of a, a transition risk that's market and cons- customer-related. And on the physical risk side, you have acute and chronic. So things like acute would be a hurricane and chronic would be drought or rising sea levels. How does that impact your business? Um, so so um, the, the idea that climate risk is different than investment risk is one of these things that I think both some of the big investment management houses as well as the SEC is seeking to dispel, that climate risk is simply another form of risk that companies need to adapt and understand whether or not it impacts their business. And and just sort of the final thing, the framework doesn't say that any company must have a climate-related risk that needs to be managed by their enterprise risk management. Uh, I think that's a big misunderstanding from a lot of the clients that I'm talking to. It, you, if you're a small software company, software as a service, you've only got some employees, you don't, maybe you don't even have a data center, you're a cloud-based computing company, well, you may not have a climate-related risk, and that's okay. But you still have to disclose the process you went through to understand whether or not you have those risks. So that's where this idea of getting the entire company involved is, is really sort of become very important. And you mentioned the asset risk and the transition risks. Quantifying those and coming up with the right qualitative disclosures is uh, an iterative process. It takes a lot of information. Um, what are you seeing in terms of technology companies and their ability to to pull that together? I know many have done it voluntarily, but but those fast followers that are maybe attacking this for the first time, what are their experiences? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I think in some ways they they have to kind of go through their their own stages of of shock, denial, anger, depression, acceptance about you know what what exactly do I have to do? In fact, uh, our in the loop article I, I love the title and it's it's called the SEC wants me to disclose what question mark exclamation point, um, and, and I think that that's the initial reaction. Um, but but then once once companies kind of see that there's a framework to follow, it's not just invent it your own. There's a dedicated framework to follow. There's specific information to be gathered. There are people in supply chain, risk management, accounting, finance, and your ESG function and employees that that really can bring to bear the information that you need to make that determination. Um, So clearly certain manufacturing or in the high tech space, companies that may have a fairly low um, carbon footprint on their own have a, an extraordinarily large scope three or supply chain carbon footprint. Um, so they they really have to engage their customers, uh, their suppliers, both upstream, downstream, and understanding just just how are the products used, how what's the flow of materials and, and assets throughout their value chain. So it, I, I think, uh, like I said in the beginning, the the leading companies can you know not waste a crisis. By instead of looking at this as just something to get through quickly, take your time and do it right and see the sources of, of potential cost savings there as well. Yeah, Rich, what I was just going to add is what we've practically seen clients do is as we've been talking with them about updating their materiality assessments with us and having our help with uh, looking at their scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emission calculations is they've asked for a, you know, call it a lightweight TCFD conversation analysis with us to get started on that journey because it'll take a fair amount of, of work to get their minds wrapped around it and what they need to do to drive forward. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I, I think when you look at the technical guidance for TCFD, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So starting off with that initial qualitative risk assessment is really sort of a good first step. But for some of these more advanced companies uh, in the technology space, they're, they're actually going well beyond that into quantitative risk disclosures. So even mapping out all their physical locations. So you might see a big telecom company mapping out the locations of their internet points of presence or their data centers or central offices and and you can subject you can there are really great tools we have some and there are others on the market that you can map well this, this these 10 areas are subject to flooding and here's the combined value of those assets and you it helps drive to that quantitative value of of what's at risk and if you take a big step back why are we even here today what caused all this well investors investors have said look and some investors are famous for sending letters to CEOs and say, look, you know, Ms. or Mr. CEO, we don't really care whether or not you believe in climate change. We're seeing material financial losses from these extreme weather events. And we simply want to understand whether you as a company have undertaken the due diligence, the homework, to see whether or not you're subject to these same sort of risks. And if you are, what are you doing about them? And that's always, to me, been a reasonable ask. I would never buy stock in a company that, that doesn't disclose their risks in their, in their 10K and the MD&A discussion. This is, this is simply another risk. It's a big one. It's perhaps some people think the biggest one of our generation. But even if you don't believe that, it's a risk that investors are interested in understanding what you're doing about. And the SEC's remit is to protect investors. So that, that's kind of how this, this all came about. Bringing it back. Bringing it back home to CFOs, I think you know they've been part of corporate storytelling to the industrial community for a long time, and getting them engaged in this process is going to be an area for them to add some additional value. So, Robert, let, let me ask maybe a little bit more tactical question because um, you know the leaders in in technology have been making these voluntary disclosures, but often those disclosures aren't made until the springtime or summer. So, you know, maybe you see a corporate sustainability report issued in April, May, or June, or, or later, um, the SEC rule would require the, these, this information to be in a 10K uh, 60 days after a calendar year end or after a fiscal year end. What does the companies need to be doing, even if they're gathering this information in a quality manner now, to be able to comply with that timing requirement? What kind of requests are we seeing from our clients? We're seeing a range of, of conversations. Um, I think people would love there to be an ESG ERP available on the market yesterday. Um, that's not the case. Um, there are hundreds of companies that have uh, a product or a role in the ecosystem for sustainability or broader ESG reporting. Um, but most companies only have a small part of what's needed in that ecosystem, and many use spreadsheet tools to calculate and track that information. But the essential thing is understanding what they can do to get, I'd say, near real-time data from the source and get it into a tool, whether it's a, a SaaS solution or even a spreadsheet solution, that will allow um, automation of pro processes to speed the timeline up. Um, and allow controls and processes to be put in place so that the financial team will have confidence that the process is repeatable, it's scalable, 
and you know they can make that representation. So it's it's looking at where is the company in terms of their complexity, and do they need a system that is um, really robust and custom built today, or do they have time to work through uh, a more pragmatic approach to using tools available today? some process improvement, some automation, um, some additional system, you know, in, you know, architecture put in place, um, and then figuring out by the time the SEC requirements are in place, you know, how aggressive do they have to be on that front? So it's, it really ranges the, the conversations with, you know, these mid-pack companies that I talked about earlier are much more focused on the, let's keep it, let's keep it simple and repeatable and not get ahead of our skis, um, whereas the, some of the larger companies are taking more aggressive uh, approaches and asking us to help them look at what would the system requirements be and then helping them manage a process where they send bids out, uh, RFIs and RFPs to, to big solution vendors to see, you know, will their solutions cover all the uh, technical needs that they have today and into the future. It's a, it's a rapidly evolving space. Uh, Rich, I know you've been around this for a while, um, but uh, I think we'll, we'll still have a couple of years of evolution on this before things start to really settle down. Yeah, I'll just add to that something one of our colleagues once said, the best solution is one that you already own. Um, and, and and the value that I, I think sometimes our clients look to us to bring is uh, this is rapidly evolving and there's lots of players out there. I'm sure all of us get two or three emails a day from new, new software companies out there saying, Hey, I'd love to partner with you. Um, there's lots of, of tools out there, some more real than others. And, um, it, you know, while that market shakes out, our clients are, are, you know, understandably nervous about investing lots of money in these solutions. So if you already have, um, two or three different tools, but you're, there are a few gaps. There are ways uh, that that we, you know you, you can sort of add the glue in between to make them work until sort of that fulsome ESG ERP system uh, magically appears one day. Yeah, and Rich, I guess what I would just bring it back home to the CFOs listening to this is you have the DNA in your teams to do this, and sustainability teams have not been under the same level of reporting scrutiny, accuracy, auditability, et cetera, you really can lend a lot of value to the organization uh, in this partnership that exists between sustainability teams and your team. Um, and while there may sometimes be tension between the two teams, when you know, one team says, I own this, you know, keep your keep yourself at a distance, there really is a good place in the middle for these teams to work together and drive the, the best outcomes um, for the for the organization around reliable data, but, you know, not trying to take away somebody's uh, role around sustainability strategy um, versus someone who is going to help with compliance, uh, reporting, process controls, and and uh, reliability of the data. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. Um, it, that that it, It's a great opportunity for a collaboration. So, so it, it would be unrealistic for an ESG professional to maybe understand accounting, accounting controls, similarly unrealistic for someone in the CFO's office to understand the intricacies of carbon accounting. Um, so putting those two together, um, you end up with a, a, you know, one plus one equals far more than two. So let's take a quick detour into how the uh, industry thought about the proposed rules vis-a-vis -vis their comment letters. So um, the SEC has reported they've received more comment letters on this proposed rulemaking than any other docket in their history. 
Uh, I understand over 14,000 letters were submitted. Now, that's a little misleading because 10,000 of those were form letters, uh, you know, the same letter submitted multiple times um, by many, many parties. Um, about 3,000 of the comments were from individuals that didn't have a ton of substance to them um, in terms of recommendations on how the rules could be approved. Uh, but there were about 1,000 comments that were very substantive. Um, including our own. And many of those comment letters were 30, 40, 50 pages long because it was a very comprehensive rule. Um, one of the topics that I know many commented on was the timing of the implementation of the proposed rules. The draft proposal required um, inclusion of this data for the 2023 fiscal year in the 2024 10K which is pretty quick. I know that we at PwC advocated for at least another year of transition time. Robert, just listening to your comments about the technology enablement that's going to be necessary to gather and report this information, more time seems to be necessary. In, in general, what were the comments like from the technology sector? Were they generally supportive? Um, and to the extent that they have recommendations on how to improve the rulemaking to make it more operational, what direction did they go? I'm happy to start off on that. It's not surprising that they were generally supportive, you know, notwithstanding certain things about timing or 1% versus 5% materiality threshold. Uh, generally, it was supportive. And, and to me, based on the beginning of our conversation here, it's not surprising because technology can really lead the way. Uh, in fact, we often talk about technology-enabled reporting um, and, and uh, s some of the companies that we're working with really have really good solutions that would help identify this information uh, that is needed for, for companies to, to report you know, greenhouse gas emissions or climate-related risk. Um, and, and then, of course, they have this great opportunity through decarbonization and the enabling effect of information communication technologies, which is called ICT. So ICT has this great enabling effect of reducing emissions in other industries. Um, so, so it's not surprising they're generally in, in favor of, of climate action. Yeah, I think I would just add in there uh, on your point on this being an opportunity. When you think about the digital transformation that was accelerated through the pandemic, this is another event driving continued digital transformation and is a positive thing for growth in the sector. I think we'll talk about this a bit later, but it'll it's going to be interesting to see how the sector with so much growth is able to have outsized impact on their energy efficiency. Um, as well as their emission intensity. Well, Robert, that's a great segue. Why don't we spend a few minutes just talking about the different scopes of emissions that technology companies are going to be reporting and managing um, and some of the challenges that they face both in the measurement and in, and in the reporting of those scope uh, one, two, and three emissions. So, you know, scope one feels pretty straightforward. It's direct emissions, or as I like to say, tailpipes and smokestacks. Uh, how is that going to apply most directly within the technology sector? Uh, as, as sort of our resident carbon geek, I'm happy to take that one on. Um, yeah, I heard you teach a class on carbon emissions. 
That's that's the rumor. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, the scope one, the direct emissions, uh, a lot of people think about, like you say, you know, uh, tailpipes and smokestacks. Uh, but another part of, of scope one are what we call fugitive emissions. Um, so in, in data centers, you often have an extraordinary amount of cooling or air conditioning. Um, and, and those use refrigerants, which, which have an outsized impact on global warming. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, an ounce of a certain refrigerant can be up to 10 or 15,000 times more potent than an ounce of CO2. You know, or a gram or whatever, what have you. So, so understanding the fugitive emissions, also certain manufacturing certain products like flat panel televisions or interestingly enough, solar panels actually use certain chemicals that, that also have very high global warming potential. So the fugitive emissions tends to be uh, an often overlooked area of, of scope one emissions for TMT companies, technology media telecom companies. Uh, the other aspect is, uh, Data centers typically need some sort of backup. So data centers are typically powered by electricity, but critical applications need 24-7, 365 availability. Um, so most data centers have a pretty significant generation generator backup, and those generators are, nine times out of ten, powered by either diesel or natural gas. And again, that, that falls under the scope one emission. So fugitive emissions and, and uh, from the manufacturing process and air conditioning, you know, data center cooling, tend to be often overlooked in, the, in this space. I think another point I would, I would layer in there, Rich, is um, around data centers, companies' data centers being a scope two um, measurement item. As digital transformation keeps pushing people either to more efficient data centers or in many cases to the hyperscalers in the cloud, it'll shift that to a scope three reporting requirement, which just continues to get to the point of the, the rapid growth that we're seeing in um, cloud computing, but still the, the, the acceleration of actual carbon emissions happening. If you look at a couple of the hyperscalers um, had, you know, big revenue growth, but also had, you know, 18 to 20% increase in their emissions in their most recent reports. Um, and so there's, you know, this back to this conversation of if there's tremendous growth in our sector, but we don't have the ability to have outsized improvements in efficiency of those data centers or, you know, all the other uh, inputs uh, that go into um, carbon emissions, you're going to be in a tough spot to drive absolute reduction in emissions, which will make the attainment of the net zero goals more and more challenging as we get closer to whether it's 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And you mentioned some of these emissions are shifting from scope two. Um, if you're running your own data centers to scope three, if you're if you're uh, outsourcing that to others, but on the scope two side, it's not so easy to estimate those emissions based upon the carbon content of the electricity you're buying um, at various times of the day all across the world. So, uh, Rich, I know you've given a lot of thought to some of those challenges. What should our client be thinking about? Um, you know, I, I, t I tend to think that folks are saying, yeah, I can handle scope one and two. It's scope three that's going to be challenging, but scope two is not so easy either. Yeah, there 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 are some tried and true tools. For example, eGrid um, is sort of the EPA's way of, of helping you enter a 
uh, loca physical location or a zip code and tell you what the carbon content of the the electricity there is. But but that lags significantly um, in terms of dates. So I think in 2022. Yeah, and it might be on an annual basis or a monthly well, well, basis, which well, can be it, very differently, different than an hourly basis. Co correct, correct. And sometimes the data is even a couple of years behind. Um, so with, with the amount of renewable energy being added to many states' electricity grid and portfolio, um, it, it's not always accurate. And, um, you know, and that's an important part of, of companies wanting the most accurate view of their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, some utility companies do help with more, more um, you, you know, accurate, up-to-date data. But, but honestly, to try to do that manually would, would just be a real, real challenge. So some of the more dedicated greenhouse gas tools that are out there are helping to solve that challenge by, by getting into real-time pricing or, or even um, you know, taking advantage of, of the renewable energy credits and renewable energy that a company may buy on their own to hit some of these aggressive greenhouse gas reduction targets. And, and just to add one thing on scope two. Um, and, and this is a real risk for companies. I've seen this happen before. Um, it, it's important to be, be very transparent in how your emissions evolve over time. So, for example, if you had a company that had a manufacturing plant and they decided to close that plant down, that plant had scope one and scope two emissions, they decide to close it down, they're going to shift it offshore somewhere for lower cost manufacturing. So you're right, those emissions go into scope three. Not all companies count the, all the categories of scope three. So if you're bar purchasing contract manufacturing services, that's scope three, category one, purchase goods and services. But consider the emissions impact. While the contract manufacturer may be more efficient from you on a per item basis, very often the electricity that they buy to run their own plants is 100% coal or oil fired as opposed to maybe only 40 or 50% coal fired here in the US. Um, so so uh, climate advocacy groups and increasingly investors are keen to that. It's called shadow emissions, meaning you know we had emissions here and now they're somewhere else. So nothing to see here when, when that couldn't be further from the truth. So in many cases, outsourcing may save you some money, but it causes net a lot more emissions. So, so people are savvy to that. So if you do shift your emissions to, to others, that's fine. That, that could be a perfectly reasonable business strategy. You just have to account for them. They can't sort of magically disappear. Yeah, and I know certain jurisdictions are thinking about a carbon border tax to deal with that issue on a on a more legislative basis, which will require an enormous amount of new information um, in terms of the carbon content of the supply chains. So uh, that will be quite challenging if we see those border carbon taxes take off. I, I, I agree, and and I, I often think of the legal analogy, uh, which is a, a trial represents a failure of negotiation, and in this, uh, I, I think regulation represents sometimes a failure of innovation. Um, so with all these tools out there to to calculate and capture your impact and reporting and report it in an open and transparent way, um, that that's one way I think we can avoid future regulations in this area. Just have that full, fulsome accounting in as close to real-time a way as possible of what your embedded carbon emissions are, maybe even sort of a carbon ledger being sort of standard to go along the financial ledger. Yep. I think that's an interesting you know, twist to the conversation is how can CFOs add value in driving towards the kinds of uh, behavioral changes that we need to see within companies 
to get more efficient and be mindful of whether it's product development issues, um, product in use issues, and the historical role of you know CFOs in helping to build budgets, helping to uh, create operational reports for teams and other kinds of performance management um, um, cycles that happen at companies, creating those around carbon emissions and setting targets, helping to get the data timely so that company personnel running operations and product development um, and sales can understand whether they're on track or not and then course correct before it's too late. Um, I also think that, you know, whether you implement an internal carbon tax or not, there's other tools that CFOs can look to implement to start driving more of the behavioral change, which it will be a challenge. As we all know, behavioral change uh, is, is a big impediment to a lot of people's plans and, and, and goals. With that comment, as we come to the end of the podcast, uh, maybe I'll just ask each of you if you had a few minutes of, of advice and recommendations for our listeners, whether the SEC proposed rule becomes a final rule or not, um, what would you urge them to be thinking about and doing? Yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about this already, but I think the, the first thing I would want to understand is what is my current state of preparedness? Um, understanding, you know, how deep is my uh, data collection and, re and reporting today? And then understand the, the quality and ability to scale that in a rapid time frame. Um, I would also take a look at the capabilities of the folks on my team and look to upscale their skills pretty soon. Um, I know that as a, as a firm, our, we've gone through a fair amount of upskilling over the years, but around ESG, we've been driving a fair amount of that over, I'd say, the last 12, 12 months, 18 months. It will be essential for finance functions to have more capability around ESG and sustainability and greenhouse gas accounting internally. Um, so I, I would be you know, taking my um, inventory of where I am today so I could figure out how fast do I need to move to respond to the regulations that are coming? I, I, I think that's a great observation, Robert. I, I you know, I, I would sort of summarize that it's all about the data, and 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 I think I think that that is true. And while greenhouse gas emissions, I think a lot of people are focused on because it's a clear requirement. We understand what scope one, two, and three is. We understand there'll be an audit requirement. Um, but, but a lot of companies are still trying to figure out the climate related risk. And we talked about the TCFD. That, that, that's a significant undertaking to really understand what your climate related risks and opportunities are. And, and don't forget about opportunities because, uh, you know, just to play upon a theme, don't waste a crisis. If you're under, if you're opening up the box to look what's inside, you might as well find the opportunities that exist there. Um, so, so, um, you know, I've, I've, my, my line to clients has often been, um, let's focus on the things that are no regrets. So even if this SEC climate rule goes away in its entirety, which I wouldn't bank on, but even if it did, Casey, you brought up, you know, the investors, there's the European Union rules, uh, there, there's big companies like, you know, like these tech companies that are saying, if you want to do business with us, we want your carbon footprint, we want you to set science-based greenhouse gas reduction targets and report to us annually. So it doesn't really matter where it comes from, it doesn't really matter whether you're a public or private company. These are things that... Um, you know, I think everybody has to go through their stages of grief over. And, and once you get through shock, denial, and anger, you come to acceptance and, and then you calculate it. It's just part of, of how you do business. Um, the, the world has changed and this, this issue is here to stay. 
And um, the, the sooner you get started, the better off you'll be. Well, and as a last footnote in bibliography, I thought that that quote, Rich, came from Rahm Emanuel, our former mayor here in Chicago, never waste a good crisis. Turns out it's Winston Churchill. So uh, uh, most of what he said ended up being accurate. So I think that's a that's a great quote to to bandy about in this conversation. So thanks to you both for this great conversation. As uh, the SEC moves forward with the rules, I'm sure we'll reconnect and talk about what what does the SEC um, recommend or require in their final rulemaking, which we we understand may be issued as early as the fall. And uh, what should our technology clients be thinking about as they pursue that? So thanks to you both for this great conversation and I look forward to reconnecting. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. Enjoyed it. That's our show for today. We'll have more of these industry-specific episodes for you in the coming weeks and tune in next Tuesday for the continuation of our Comp Toolkit for the month of August. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.